We are excited to be starting this series about the issues that you guys told us are the things that we feel like the church should be talking about, but it never really seems to. I mean, there are things that are on the, the very front of everyone's mind, and we're just wondering, like, why aren't these things talked about in the church? So uh, as you know, by now, we took all the easy ones that you gave us, and um, so uh, we're going to be talking about issues in the Middle East. We're going to be talking about race and, and politics and issue of mental illness, and, and we're also going to be talking about same-sex relationships in our culture and, and what the Bible has to say about all of that. And, and so we took all the easy ones that you sent us, And uh, we're going to have a lot of fun the next several weeks. We really did take the ones that, for the most part, were the ones mentioned the most. Uh, And I've said most a couple of times now. But the the one that we left off uh, was the issue of the end times in the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about the end of the world and all that kind of thing? And the reason why we left that off is because just last fall, we did a series called The Beginning and the End. And I'd love for you to go to our website and it's all free downloads. You can watch the messages for free. Uh, you can download the podcast or whatever and listen to it on your way to work. So those are there. We really feel like that addressed most of the questions. And as we got into this, we figured that really before we could go anywhere with these topics, we had to address one of the topics that came in rather frequently, and Pastor Brian said, you know, if we're going to do this series, this needs to be the one that's first because it's kind of the basis of, of everything else. And it's this issue of biblical authority. So people are writing in, you people are writing in, asking things like, how do we know that, that the Bible is true? How do we know that the Bible is accurate? How can the, the Bible be counted on? And so today we are kicking off this Elephant in the Church series. I'm going to do the very best I can today and, and let God speak. And let's talk about this issue of biblical authority. So in the church, why would people ask that question? Well, it's interesting that in churches, when if we were to survey you, and this was actually done several years ago in churches all around the country, if we were to survey you and say, how many of you believe in biblical authority? About 40% of you would say, yes, I'm good with it. That means the other 60% of you would say no, or you're not sure about biblical authority. And authority is kind of the key word, isn't it? I mean, no one really likes the idea of authority. Thank you very much. I'm an adult now, and I don't need anyone telling me that they are my authority. I'm in charge at my house, or maybe you're a small business owner, and you're thinking, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm running the ship, and maybe you answer to a board where you are, maybe you don't, whatever it is. But the issue is feeling like we are our own authority. But yet the Bible proclaims its authority, and its inspiration, and the authority of God. And those are the things that we're going to be talking about this morning. I don't know when it started, but around, we believe it started around 450 years before Christ walked the earth, during the time of Ezra, when Jewish school children were coming for the very first time, for their very first day of school. And as a textbook, they were going to be using primarily the first five books of the Old Testament. And as they came into the schoolroom, the very first thing that the teacher would do is that they would take out honey. And they would take the honey and they would put it over top of scripture that was written over top of tablets or whatever form of paper they had, papyrus, parchment, whatever. They would take that and they would instruct all of the children to lick the honey. And then they would say a blessing over them. And there are lots of different things that the teacher may have chose to use, but one of my favorites is from the book of Psalms. Psalms 119 verse 103 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
So for all of those children, that would be their very first encounter with this book. Now, I'm more of a Hershey syrup kind of guy, personally. Um, But honey's okay. And then the teacher gets to deal with the consequences of the honey uh, for about the next hour or so as all of the children are on a a sugar rush. But they're making a point. First encounter, this book, like honey, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What was your first encounter with the scriptures? Do you remember? I know living here in the South, if you were raised in the South, uh, you probably were taken to church at some point or to a vacation Bible school at some point. And, and maybe your first encounter with the stories from this book were on a flannel graph or, or someone standing and, and teaching you. What, what, what were your first encounters with this book? What causes you to go to it now? Are you looking for answers to a personal problem or to a, a world issue, something that you're seeing on the news? Or I know a lot of us go to it really for trivia and, and to make sure that we are right in a debate, right? It's like, honey, I told you, I know it's in here. God said, thus says the Lord, so I'm right and you're wrong again and I'm gonna prove it. I can Google it and I know it's there somewhere in something that looks like the Bible. And so a lot of people go to it for that, just to be right. What was your first encounter with it? I grew up on analogies like the Bible's like a rule book or a, a manual for life which I'm, if I'm being honest, neither one of those things compels me to read the Bible, okay? I don't read the manuals. Are you like this? I mean, I'm not handy, and probably part of the reason is because I don't read the manuals. We just take the stuff out and then just kind of see what happens and call for help when the stuff doesn't work. It doesn't compel me to read it, those analogies. The crucial things that we're tackling today are how do we know that this book actually contains truth? I mean, how do we know that it's accurate? How can we understand and believe this Christian claim that these are the very words of God? Can it, be, can it be possible that a book contains the words of God himself, the creator of the universe, the author of salvation? Is it possible that he could have spoken and that we have his words? And then the biggest issue of them all is what authority does it have? Does it have any authority in my life? And aren't there a lot of stories, by the way? And how does a story have authority. We stand, one of the things that makes Westridge somewhat unique are our values. And if you go onto our website, you'll look and you'll see that one of our values, I think right at the very top, is this idea of biblical authority. We believe that the Bible is the full and final authority on all matters of faith and practice. That's what we believe. I'm letting the cat out of the bag early but I want to take the next few moments to try to demonstrate for you and let the Spirit of God speak as to why we believe this about the Bible. And can I just say, if you are skeptical today, if you have questions today, this whole series is about the questions that are on people's mind. Can I just say, questions are good. Questions are wonderful. Questions don't scare me. Blind allegiance does. And so as we come to this book, I think we're going to find that God can handle the questions. So what exactly is the Bible? As many of you know, the Bible is a collection of books, actually, 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of roughly 1,400 to 1,600 years. The remarkable thing is that all of those authors have the same thread, and that thread is this, God's ultimate redemption plan for the world 
through his son. Now you have to understand this sets the Bible apart from other world religions. You see, other world religions claim that their books, their holy books, like the Quran, for instance, was given to Muhammad over the whole of his life, and he, would, he just wrote it down as things were revealed to him. The Book of Mormon was revealed to one person over a very short period of time, but the Bible says that it's been revealed to many, many people over a long period of time, and it never contradicts itself. In its own words, the Bible claims to be the inspired words of God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But I want to be honest to the skeptics in the room for just a moment. Self-proclamation doesn't really help skepticism, does it? So just because the Bible claims to be inspired, that, that's probably not good enough for many of the skeptics in the room. So I want to begin today by going outside of the Bible to consider whether or not this book is actually reliable or authentic. And what I mean by that is that a book is considered to be authentic when it records the facts of a story or of someone's writing as they actually occurred. I mean, the Bible records the creation of the earth. It has an account of a worldwide flood of which there are many accounts in different civilizations and traditions. It, it records God's first interactions with men like Abraham, Jacob, and Moses. And Moses is even reported to be the one who wrote down the first five books of the Bible. But the Bible records all of these things not as legend or myth, but as fact. So is it authentic? A secular scientist or historian would tell you that a book is authentic based on how many copies of the manuscript that we have, of the book that we have, and how quickly do we have them from the time that it was written. So I want to look at, at two books in history that are not in question by anybody today. I mean, two of the, the first one is the book, The Iliad by Homer. This book is as important to the Greeks as the Hebrew scriptures are to the Jews. It is when it comes to Homer's Iliad, we have 650 manuscripts, which are handwritten copies, and we have them within a thousand years of the time that Homer is believed to have written that book. Roman historian Tacitus wrote his collection of the history of Rome in the second century. No one questions the validity and the authenticity of this book. We have one copy and we have it about 750 years after it claims to have initially been written. So those are two that no one argues with. So let's look at the Old Testament for just a moment. The Old Testament, as I said a moment ago, just the Old Testament was actually written over a period of about 1,000 years, from about 1400 BC to 400 BC. And Old Testament manuscripts were discovered not too long ago in a place called Qumran near the Dead Sea in Israel. And it's been determined that the manuscripts that were found there are dated to about 300 years after the last book of the Old Testament has been written. That puts them about 1,200 years from the time that Moses would have first been writing. It's impressive. It means the earliest writings of the Old Testament are on the same level as Homer's Iliad, on about the same level. It's not a world beater, but it's, it's good. No one would doubt its validity. Then we get to the New Testament. The 27 books that make up the New Testament were all completed by no later than the year 90 in the first century. We have the earliest copy, the earliest manuscript, by the year 125, just 35 years later. 
We have a complete copy of the New Testament by sometime around the year 350, less than 300 years from its writing. Now catch this. By the year 350, there are 5,664 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and another 16,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament in different language, different languages, more than 30 times the amount of manuscripts and less than half the time of any other book. Just from the standpoint of secular scholarship, this is the most authentic book in antiquity. Now, those of you that glazed over about four or five minutes ago, just stay with me, okay, for just a few moments, okay? Different versions have come about, largely as people have have looked at different ones of the manuscripts. The King James was actually translated from five handwritten Greek manuscripts, the oldest of which was dated to the year 1100 AD. The the NIV and the New American Standard, the NAS, those two look at all 5,664 Greek manuscripts where the oldest dates to 125 AD, making them exponentially more reliable than the King James when it comes to accuracy and authenticity. I just wanted to throw that in there just for good, clean fun. (laughs) But regardless of those translations, all of them, meet all of the arguments of textual criticism. There are no wild variations or contradictions in any of that. When it comes to science, the Bible actually reveals a host of scientific facts that are credited to man's discovery. Did you know that the Bible is actually declares for us that the earth was round and it took mankind hundreds and hundreds of years to figure that out where if they had just opened their Bible, it would have been a lot easier. The Bible talks about the gravitational pull among the stars. The Bible lists out facts about the oceans and their currents, the hydrological cycle, the first and second laws of thermodynamics, and many, many more. The Bible is all over it. No other book, no other book has been 100% accurate about prophecy. But up to this point, over 2,000 prophecies have been fulfilled with no errors. How is that even possible? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21, Peter says this. He says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want to come back to that in just a moment. But when we look at prophecy, the Bible predicted kings such as Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, centuries before they were on the scene. It even foretells the destruction of a city that was said to be just invincible, that it would never fall, the city of Tyre. And 400 years after the Bible predicts that it would fall, it falls not by a Jewish army, but rather it falls to a man by the name of Alexander the Great. There are 332 prophecies given about Jesus that he was supposed to fulfill in his lifetime. They're given hundreds of years before his birth. His death is predicted over 700 years before it happens, down to the details of the nails in his hands and feet. The probability that Jesus of Nazareth would fulfill even eight of those prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power. You have a better chance of being struck by lightning today which is one in 250 million, by the way, if you're a nervous person, I just want to set you at ease. Uh, you, get a, you get another one in 250 million chance tomorrow, so be careful as you go outside. 
just eight of them. And Jesus fulfilled all of them, over 300. And remember, these things weren't written down by just a a couple of people in a room, like trying to work it out over just a, a few months or whatever it would take together. But rather, these things were written down over a period of hundreds of years. These things were fulfilled hundreds of years after they were predicted. People wrote them down that weren't part of the writings before. Truly, I could go on and on and on, but I won't because some of you are like, please stop the madness. I don't care about numbers. But I want you to understand that this is truly, even from a secular literature, secular historians and science, all the above, truly the most remarkable book in history in terms of its authenticity and accuracy. But what does it mean that it has authority? Because that's where I bow up, right? That's where I'm like, no, I have authority. And by authority, I mean the right to decide. I mean the right to give direction. One of Webster's definitions of authority is this, the confident quality of someone who knows a lot about something or who is respected or obeyed by other people. Authority, the right, the power, the ability to set direction, words that should be obeyed. Authority is the issue. I mean, when this book talks about marriage and finances and parenting relationships, self-esteem, decision-making, whatever it is, it sounds very different from the self-help books you, self-help books you can download on your Kindle today. When the Bible speaks on morality, it sounds very different than our mainstream culture's anything goes approach. And when the Bible talks about God and the path and the experience of eternal life, it is not universalist in its approach. How could a book such as this be recognized as authority? The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit of God, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The Apostle Paul and the writers of Scriptures, they never suppose to be speaking of their own wisdom or knowledge. They never take any authority for themselves. Rather, the Apostle Paul says he was taught by the Spirit of God. And what does it mean that this book may be inspired. In the verse I read to you earlier about prophecy, Peter says that men from God were carried along. They were carried along or moved by the Holy Spirit. The the Greek word there for carried along is a nautical term. It describes the way a ship captures the wind. The work of the Spirit of God is often described that way. But this is how the Bible describes divine inspiration. All scripture is God-breathed. God the Father is the originator of every single word. And the Spirit of God did the guiding as it was written down. And one of the incredible things about all of this to me is that there was no type of zombie dictation in the inspiration. I mean, truly, oftentimes we get glimpses into the personalities of the writers. You may have heard me say this before. I love pointing this out, that the Apostle John is known by the beloved disciple in the book of... John, don't you know Peter rolled his eyes every time that he read that? I mean, really and truly. But we get glimpses in their personalities. There's different forms of writing. There's prophecy. There's 
historical writings, there's songs and poetry and, and all without any contradiction. I mean, the first chapter of the Bible about creation is a Hebrew poem, but that doesn't make it any less true. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,800 times, you find the words, God said, or thus says the Lord. The Bible claims over and over and over again that the words from this book are from God himself. The writers do not give themselves their own authority. God is the authority. You see, the issue today for us as a church is not simply the scripture's authority. Some book have authority in my life. The issue for us today is does God have authority in your life? Does he have the right to set direction? Does he have the right to be obeyed? And it's amazing to me that the sovereign God of the universe puts his word out before us and lets us decide whether or not he gets to have authority. God doesn't use his authority to organize the world like a CEO. His words are not merely his commentary on the human condition. His word is not simply for policing or judging the world. God doesn't use his authority to stand outside of mankind, but he uses his authority to lovingly bring about the redemption for the whole world. And he does this by sending his son Jesus and giving him the authority. Jesus talks about this in John chapter three, in the last 10 verses there. I wanna read to you just two of them. Jesus says this, for he whom God has sent, talking about himself, utters the words of God. For he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and he has given all things into his hand. God didn't send a warrior to force his will on everyone. He didn't send a politician to persuade us. He sent his very own son whom he loves to demonstrate and model the life and love of God. Jesus, the son, carried the words of God. In fact, the apostle John calls Jesus the word of God in flesh. But Jesus revealed after his resurrection that it was actually something even more than that, if that's even possible. 40 days after his resurrection, after being seen by more than 500 people, Jesus says this, all authority in heaven on earth, in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Jesus was given all authority. Jesus was given the right to set direction. Jesus was given the right to be obeyed by his resurrection. And then he commands his disciples to go. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And watch this now. He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Teach them all that I have commanded you, Jesus says. As the Father has sent me, so am I sending you, he says in John chapter 20. Standing on the authority and the reality of his resurrection, Jesus demonstrates that every word he has uttered has been the very words of God all along. And then he says this in Acts chapter one, verses eight. Verse eight, to his followers, he says, you will receive power. Not authority, a different kind of power, different word. You will receive power, dunamis. You will be dynamite when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. 
Jesus gives his word to the apostles through the Holy Spirit. And as they go, these eyewitnesses speak the word of God with power. And they knew that when they stood to teach and preach, and when those writers of the gospels were writing those things down, they knew that they were carrying the very words of God. The apostle Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter two, he says, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. He never even claims to be smart, let alone have authority. He says, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter two, he says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Believers. That early church, people listening and putting their trust in the words of those who had been with Jesus, putting their trust in those who, had, who were the eyewitnesses. And those believers became the local expression of the church throughout the years to where we are today. The very words of God inspired from his own heart so that he could direct us by his authority. That's what this book is. Bishop N.T. Wright says it this way. I love this. He says, the Bible then is designed to function through human beings, through the church, through people who living still by the spirit have their life molded by the spirit inspired book by soaking ourselves in scripture and the power and strength and leading of the spirit in order that we might then speak freshly and with authority to the world of this same creator God. God's authority vested in scripture is designed as all God's authority is designed to liberate human beings, to judge and condemn evil and sin in the world in order to set people free to be fully human. That's what God is in the business of doing and that's what his authority is there for. God's authority is here to set people free. God has never used his authority to enslave anyone. He's never used his authority to enslave anyone. I hate to say this, but I've seen ordained Christian leaders wield this book as a tool for their own preferences and legalisms and take it out of context and abuse power in order to put people under their feet. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul warned Timothy this would be the case. I'm gonna read it from the message just because it's just tasty this way. Just go with me. It says this. He says, the spirit makes it clear that as time goes on, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. These liars have lied so well and for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. And then they start telling people to get away and abstain from good things. They'll tell you not to get married. They'll tell you not to eat this or that food. Perfectly good food, God created to be eaten heartily and with thanksgiving. I love that the apostle Paul loves the food. With thanksgiving by believers who know better. Everything God created is good and to be received with thanks. Nothing is to be sneered at and thrown out. God's word and our prayers make every item in creation holy. I've seen spouses in marriages, in marriage relationships, create unfair expectations and use their knowledge of a few verses to create a world that puts themselves at the head rather than God the Son. I've seen parents exasperate their kids 
by picking and choosing lofty standards, absent of grace. And then when those same kids grow up and they want nothing to do with the church or with their family, they blame the results on God. Listen, this book is about a savior who came to set captives free. He told us he wants to love the weak, to love our neighbors and our enemies. This book tells us to serve the outcast and to extend grace to those who have missed the mark of God the most as if they have missed it more than I have. Listen, the Bible is the revelation of the character of God and he is loving, he is creating, and he is redeeming. And if we as a people would soak ourselves in it, we would be a reflection of him in such a contagious way that people who do not yet know him will be coming to us asking how they can get to know this personal God in the same way that we do. And we can tell them it's very simple. We have the very words of God. We have soaked ourselves in this. And if you find anything good in us, it is not us, but it is him and his spirit living through us. We have... We have a responsibility to plant ourselves in this book, to soak ourselves in this book, to delight in this book, to meditate on it, to ask God to reveal himself through it. If you ask him to reveal himself through this book, he will do it every single time. Eyewitnesses were set on fire because of the confidence that they had, that they had the very words of God. And we have the same opportunity in our hands. We only have to seize it. Romans chapter 15, verse four, Paul says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I don't know what your first encounter was with this book, but I hope it was encouraging. I hope that it was grace-filled, that it was hope-filled. The scriptures were given that we might have hope. And Jesus, the word of God in flesh, came that we might have life. Is this book accurate? By every measure that man can apply to it. Can we have confidence that it's authentic? And because of what it claims, can we have confidence that these are the very words of God? Yes. Does it have authority? I love what Proverbs 30 says. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? who has established the ends of the earth. What is his name and what is his son's name? Surely you know every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Listen, this book represents the authority of almighty God. Every word has been true. Every word will always be true. And that is really good news for us today. Can I tell you why? Listen, I wanna tell you why it's good news. I wanna tell you why it's good news because beyond all the instruction for living, beyond all the proof, the prophecy, the science, beyond all of that, there are more than 3,500 promises in this book and every single one of them can be counted on by you today. 
Every single one of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God are yes. That's a Greek word. All the promises of God we say amen to. That's a Jewish word. To the Jew and to the Greek, to every single person on this planet, the promises of God are true and can be counted on. And some of you, I know you are in desperate need today of what this book has to say about you. This book tells us that God's thoughts towards you are so wonderful that you cannot even begin to comprehend them. Standing on the promises of God, standing on the promises of this book, you cannot fail. Soak yourself in this book with the authority of God. This book promises that whoever will listen to him will live in peace with the authority of God. This book promises that no matter how dark, no matter how far away you are, that if you will confess your sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you completely. With the authority of God, this book promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. He will be with you wherever you go. And I know some of you today are wondering, where is God? I can tell you, I don't know all the things that he's doing in your life, but he has promised to be with you. He is not absent today. I can promise you that. It's not a rule book. It's not a manual. It's a love note. It's a love note from the God of the universe. It's a love note meant to set you free to live life like nobody else, to live a life like no other. I can tell you why it's so difficult. I can tell you why it's such a big elephant when we're talking about it. Because there's never been forgiveness like this. There's never been mercy like this. There's never been grace like this. There's never been a book like this because there's no other God but ours. And these are his words. People will come and go But Isaiah says the grass will wither, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so in this place, and I pray in your homes and wherever you go, that you will stand on the authority of this book. Oh, it's tough at times, I know. It's like a sword, it says, living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, there, there are moments that it cuts me to the quick. But I can tell you, the God of this book can be trusted. I've lived it. I've experienced it. I can't get enough of soaking myself in him and his word because of who he is to me. I hope that you will discover him in this book in the same way. Would you bow your head and close your eyes today? I don't know if you were one of the ones who filled out a card about biblical authority. The questions are great. I love, I love the questions. I don't know if you're in the 50 to 60% who would say, this book's really not authority to me. 
Maybe that's where you were before you came in here. I'm not smart enough, certainly not a good enough communicator to persuade you in that. My prayer and our prayer throughout this series is that the Spirit of God would persuade and speak to you so that you might know that God wants to have authority in your life not to enslave you, but to set you free because he loves you. He loves you today. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, one of the things that this book says is whosoever will may come. In fact, towards the very end of the book, it says it again, whoever wishes, whoever wishes can come and receive the free gift of salvation that God sent through his son. You're here and you never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps the spirit of God is compelling you even now. Would you pray with me, God? Today I believe by faith the story from your word that you sent your son to die on the cross for my sins. God, and I believe he died to set me free from from sin, from the penalty of sin and death. God, I put my faith and trust in you right now. I accept that, that gift of grace. I accept it by faith. I commit my life to you even now.